As we continue looking at this season of Advent and expectation, uh, we come to the Sunday of peace. And peace means a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, and through the centuries, there have been a lot of different images that have been used to conjure the idea of peace. And me being a, a child of the 60s, a teen in the 70s, one of those images was one that I knew a lot, the peace symbol. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I've, I've, I'm avoiding the, the peace symbol that became so much of a time of con- uh, controversy, although I encourage you, that nice little peace symbol that you know so well, look it up and you'll find out. It's actually uh, from a symbophore, a, a sign uh, used often in, in C, not quite what people let it to be, but there's that, and then, of course, across the world, in a lot of cultures, there's the mandala, uh, which is used basically the concept of is bringing harmony into the balance of what things ought to be. And so it can be used uh, among some world religions in uh, meditation and so forth, the idea of a balance as peace. And then there is ever popular dove with olive leaf that has become to be a very powerful image of peace. Across uh, many different cultures, it is recognized. But the image, the image of peace for us is not a peace sign. It is not a dove with an olive tree leaf. It is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact of his atonement, he brought us peace. And his resurrection, he brought us the truth of that power. Because we have come to believe as people of the living God that peace is all about the salvation of the Lord. That's where it comes from. Uh, Peace as we long for it will never be found completely in a conference table. Christ indicated there would always be wars and rumors of war. We know that. Peace is not going to be found in many of the different things the world has But peace, true peace, and what that means, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to take a look at another psalm today. Last week, I shared with you a psalm of lament. Well, guess what? I'm going to share another psalm of lament that may sound a little strange when you're talking about Advent. But it's one of the readings. Now, in traditional Advent readings, uh, again, there's a rather hefty portion of the psalm left out. Usually the psalm that is read is verses 1 through 2, then verses 8 through 13. We're going to take a look at the whole text. And I'd ask, if you're able, if you would, to stand as you hear the word of the Lord. And as it is a psalm of peace, I I want you to hear very carefully what's going on. So let's listen to the word of God. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. I'm stopping right here to give you a little information. See that word, Selah? For a long time, people thought that must be a really special secret word that we don't mean, no. Folks, basically, it is a word that is probably a musical note. We're not sure if it's slow down or speed up, but typically, it is not read. So, you set aside all your wrath and turn from your fierce anger 
Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness brings forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is a psalm of a lament, but it is different. It's different than a lot of the songs of lament. There is the note, and I will show you where it kicks in, but In this psalm, there is a greater belief and awareness of what God is going to do. It's not just, Lord, why aren't you helping us? It's, Lord, help us. And these are the reasons why we believe you will. It is a song of hope. It is a song of life, as well as lament and complaint. And in this passage, the psalmist wrote of the peace that can only come through God's act of salvation. The peace that only God himself could bring becomes the the heart of this text. And I believe that the promised Messiah continues to bring peace to his people through the act of salvation he gave. And today we're going to look at the ways peace comes into our lives. The means of peace is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. But the way it comes is varied. So we're going to take a look at that today, and I pray that God will speak clearly in your heart and your mind, that you will listen with both ears and hear what God would have to say. Peace can come through remembering. This is very important for the people of God. The idea of remembering. And throughout the Old Testament, you find Men like Abraham building altars, the people of Israel going into the land of Canaan, building altars that would remind them. This is the truth. And what happens here in this text, the people of God in their song are called to remember. And the people remembered past moments of God's salvation among them. They remembered it and they rejoiced in that. This song, there's a lot of debate about when it was written and why it was written. Uh, I I kind of favor, I can't prove this, but it seems to be a song that was written for the people of Judah as they were set free from Babylonian captivity. And God delivered them and brought them safely home. But now that they're home they've noticed they still have enemies surrounding Jerusalem. The walls are not rebuilt. The temple has not been finished. And and they're still concerned. But they're looking back at that moment in time, praising God because he restored the, the nation. 
reflecting a time when they still needed God's help, they had evidence that they sang about. Evidence uh, that God had forgiven them, had covered all their sins, and had set aside His wrath and His anger. We know that you forgave us, God, because you brought us out of Babylon and you brought us back home. And this is the difference between this psalm and the one we looked at last week. Because if you remember, the psalmist doesn't even seem to acknowledge that they had anything to do with their trouble until right at the end here. The difference is we look at a psalm that has a very real consciousness that the reason for their pain lay squarely on their actions. You forgave us, God, because we forgot you. You forgave us because we wandered away from you. You forgave us because we had sinned. And they have a realization that God, back when you brought judgment, you could have destroyed us. You could have wiped us out. But you didn't. You brought forgiveness. You see, at the root of this song is an understanding. Their restoration was based solely upon God and His grace and His mercy. He had forgiven them. He had cleansed them. He had restored them. And it was His act. Because the Lord was addressing the the underlying disease of Israel. Part of the problem with medicine as it's progressed through the centuries, it's been very common for medicine to focus on just treating the symptom. But as medical knowledge increased, medicine became aware that people who used it became aware we've got to get at the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem that Israel has faced was they had gone after other gods. They had not listened to what God was saying. And now they face judgment. But this psalm says, you forgave us. And you brought us back. God struck at the root of the problem. And allowed them to have fruit. And now they're longing for it to happen again. The reality is, folks, memories of God's experience, grace in our past can lead us to peace in the time of struggle. If I were to ask for a show of hands of every person in this room who has had at least one struggle this week, one moment of pain, one moment of uncertainty, if I were to say, raise your hands, if all of you didn't raise your hands, I would think something's the matter. You're not being honest. Because struggle is part of life, isn't it? And we need to remember, in the moment of struggle, that God is with us. Lois Evans has written a book, The Stones of Remembrance. And the book actually focuses on stories of challenge and faithfulness in the Old Testament among women. It is a book written for women readers. And it is saying, look, you need to reflect on the experiences you've had in your life You need to understand how you gather up stones to build a monument to remember. So when you cross over your Jordan, you will have peace. And she wrote, Moments when the well of your soul is empty, these are the times when you need to remember God's power and times in the past 
when he sustained you. Folks, this is the key to following and finding peace. When struggle comes, when pain comes, when difficulties happen, we have to look back at the God who has already made himself known. We look back and remember that moment in time when God's Spirit spoke to us and we came under conviction in the knowledge, I need Jesus in my life. I need to know God. I need salvation. We look back into the times when we were going through the valley and not only God was with us, but he brought others, he brought people around us to sustain us. And like uh, Moses' arms were lifted in the wilderness to ensure a battle was won, we've had people hold us up and give us strength. We look back at the times when the circumstances, while we were going through the struggle, we had no idea what was happening. But we've looked back and see how God has shaped us and moved us. And when we do this, this will invoke an intention, an intentional look at our lives and the way God has moved. So, when we're in the battle, when we're in their time of struggle, let us set our minds on the God who has already moved in our lives to bring us peace. Peace is our inheritance from God as his children. Isaiah said in his great book, Isaiah 26.3, a beautiful phrase. He's calling out to God and he says, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. God will give us peace. And when we look back at what he has done, it gives us hope what he's going to do as we learn to understand this God forgives and cleanses and sets us back on the journey we should take so peace can come when we remember peace can come through earnest entreaty I'm not okay I I might get in trouble but please hear me out I'm not talking about safe prayers Do you know what I mean by safe prayers? Lord, thank you for this food and use it to the nourishment of our bodies. We can say that so quickly and say it quickly to say amen so we can start eating that we're not really thinking about what we're saying. Or now I lay me down to sleep. I'm not really sure that's a safe one for a little kid. I make them afraid of going to sleep. But here I'm talking about sincere and heartfelt crying out to God. And in this psalm, we see the people cried out for much needed deliverance in the time of their trouble. If this is the returnees from exile, they got back to Jerusalem and it was not what they were hoping for. Things were bad in Jerusalem and Judah. And there were struggles and there were enemies taunting them. And the memory of God's move in the past, what he had done, inspired them to pray for another restoration. This is the moment of lament. And they ask two rhetorical questions. Will you be angry with us forever? They somehow think you, you forgave us and you brought you us home, but here we are in this mess. Are you still angry with us? And is there any hope that we will ever get out of this predicament? 
And then he prays, they pray, will you not revive us? And the neat phrase about that, Daniel Estes has pointed out what, what is happening here. It's not just, will you God? This is a strong appeal. God, please revive us. Restore us. Breathe life into us. Help us become what we can be in you. Because of God's wrath on their sin, they would be good as dead except for the grace of God. Only the gracious God of Israel could restore them, could revive them, could bring them back to a place of joy. And when he says, will you revive us? Next comes the specific spoken request. Show us your covenant love. Show us your steadfast love for your people. Grant us your salvation. You see, God needed to go beyond justice. They needed God to show mercy. They needed God to show his undying love for his people. And only if he did, would they find peace in the midst of this plight. Now, the reality when we go through struggles, and most of you here will acknowledge this, the reality is the time of struggles can deteriorate into silence before the Lord. Writing about Job's sense of hopelessness, Warren Wearsby, in his book, Be Patient, said, when you are hurting, you may say and do a lot of things that you later regret, Job's suffering was so great that he forgot the blessings that he and his family had enjoyed for so many years. Had he never been born, he would never have been the greatest man in the East. But pain makes us forget the joys of the past. Instead, we concentrate on the hopelessness of the future. And when that happens, when the pain is so powerful, we cannot seem to see beyond it, just like Job, we might think that God abandoned us. And if we believe that God has somehow abandoned us in our time of trial, we might fall into a trap of hopeless rather than hopeful silence before the Lord. Every Sunday when we have that moment of silence, we're doing it because we acknowledge God Almighty, the Holy God, we need you to help us worship. But sometimes our silence happens because we're just in despair. We don't know what to pray and we don't know what to say. And so instead of crying out to God, we just weep. But the Word of God suggests in Romans 8 that sometimes those groans that are too deep to be uttered, the Spirit of God is praying within us. So folks, let us be real in our cries to God to bring us to the place of peace. When we're hurting, it's okay to go to God and say, God, I need your help. God, I don't understand what's happening. I can't see you moving right now, but I need you. Because I'm not going to make it if you don't move. Apostle Paul pointed out the very real need to move beyond 
the hopeless situations in life to a place of coming to God. In a passage of scripture I have quoted many, many times to you. We looked at when we were reading through the book of Philippians. It acts as part of a, a benediction at many of the services. Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, pre- present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When the weight of the world is so heavy on us that we feel like we're going to break, it is only by turning to God in persevering prayer, earnest prayer, prayer that takes that risk that we can find our way out of what John Bunyan called in The Pilgrim's Progress, the slew of despond. Without heartfelt prayer to God, we cannot find peace. And so we find the path to peace by remembering. And we can find the path to peace by crying out to God when we're struggling. Instead of turning away from Him, we turn to God and we cry out, Lord, I'm not going to make it if you don't help me here. And then, peace can come through listening. It's an interesting thing that happens in this verse. In our text, the psalmist has been using a particular word in the first person. And here the psalmist moved from us to I when he said he would listen. It's been, will you forgive us? Will you be angry with us? And all of a sudden, the psalmist says, I will listen. Moving from first person plural to first person singular. And it's very possible that what's happening here is the psalmist now, instead of just writing a piece of poetry, the psalmist is standing as a prophet, speaking the truth that people need to hear, and he's focused in his own life I need to hear you. I need to listen. And with that statement, I will listen, he is encouraging all the others you need to listen to. And what he says is, I will listen because I know God hears his people if they are willing to listen to what God says. I'm going to listen, God. I'm not going to ignore you. I want to hear what you have to say. And even if God does not immediately solve the problem, the word here tells us what God will do. And what does the word say God will do? To the people who are crying out, who are listening now to what he's having to say, he says, I will give them Peace. The Lord says he will give peace. And the word peace here, you've heard, it's one of those Hebrew terms that a lot of people know. It's shalom. And it's not just a question of absence of conflict, although it can mean that. 
the peace of the Old Testament, shalom, and even the idea behind peace in the New Testament is wholeness of being. You're becoming everything God intends you to be. He's giving you everything you need to live the fullest life that you possibly can. The fulfillment of every individual and corporate need. It's about health. It's about, yes, absence of conflict. And Paul Brassius pointed out this phrase is used often, either shalom itself or an equivalent word in the treaty text of the ancient Near East. When a nation would surrender and dedicate itself to a conquering king, the king would give them peace. And when it comes to the covenant of God, we're the vassal state. We're those who are surrendering. I've told you before, one one of the most beautiful statements I've ever heard about raising hands in worship. It's so great, I wish I had come up with it. Talked about images and symbols. Raising of hands can mean a couple of things. If I raise my hands like this, what does it mean to you? I surrender. When a little child walks up to you and raises their hands like this, what does it mean? Pick me up. And when we raise our hands to God and worship or in our private prayer or corporate, we are saying, Lord, you are my God. You are my Lord. I surrender myself to you. And we are also at times when we are hurting and we raise our hands up to God. It's God, please take me and hold me. And this is the peace that God gives. But he not only promises them, I'll bring peace to you. He also gives them a warning, doesn't he? Do not return to your folly. In other words, don't go back to what you were doing. Surrender to me. Really surrender to me. You see, sometimes people think that forgiveness is a license to do whatever you want. I don't know who first said this. I, I read the statement probably 30-something years ago, and I, don't, I didn't write down who said it, but uh, there was a thinker of the 20th, uh, 20th century who made this statement, God will forgive, it's his job. How's that for Arrogance. God does forgive. But then he's he's saying in that forgiveness, commit yourself to me. He says he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but the idea is as we yield ourselves and say, yes, Lord. It's a call to further follow God. Listen. Know that forgiveness comes and let it challenge you to live for him more faithfully. So the point of this is each of us must open our individual hearts to hear what God is saying to us. I need to be willing to let God speak to Danny. I need to be willing to hear what he's saying to me. On many occasions at the end of a service I've had somebody come up and say man God God really convicted me and that was, I, I needed that and it was tough. And I've, I have sometimes told people, depending on how well I know them, look, you just had to listen to it for 35, 40 minutes. I've been dealing with this text for weeks. And, and God's already been dealing with me. 
Andrew Murray, one of the great prayer warriors of Dagon's by, wrote a great Christian classes with Christ in the school of prayer, said prayer is not monologue but dialogue. God's voice in response to mine is its most essential part. Listening to God's voice is the secret of the assurance that he will listen to mine. And folks, if I'm not really willing to listen, you know, if my prayer life can, consists of God do this, 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 and this, amen, and I get up and I run away, if I'm not willing to listen, why should I even bother seeking his face? I love it when people ask me, Give it, tell me about a book where I can find how to discover the will of God. I've now grown comfortable in my old age <laughs> to just pick up a Bible and say, here. Folks, there's so much within the Word of God. I know people want to know what school should I go to, what job should I take off. But folks, the Word of God, if we would just do the do's that are in the Word of God, it would be enough to live our lives out in His will, wouldn't it? A.W. Tozer. A little bit tougher than Murray. Warned, whoever will listen will hear the speaking heaven. This is definitely not the hour when men take kindly to an exhortation to listen. For listening is not today a part of popular religion. We are at the opposite end of the pole from there. Religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster make a man dear to God. We need to listen. So folks, what do we need to do here? Let us move to open our hearts up to the word God would bring us. Which means I need to ask God sometimes again, like we do in worship, opening the still moment. Sometimes I just need to quit talking. Which is hard for me. I'm one of those people and they say it's, it's okay if you talk to yourself, don't answer. Folks, I answer all the time. Sometimes I just need to quiet myself. Say, okay, God, here I am. I love a story of two friends. Heard this year, many, many years ago. Two friends are walking down a very busy street. As I recall, it may have been New York City. One of them happened to be a Native American. And he looked at his friend and said, I hear a cricket. And his friend said, what? How can you possibly hear a cricket in all this noise? He said, you're just messing with me now. And the, the gentleman just stopped, reached into his pocket, pulled out a handful of coins, threw them up in the air, and when the can coins hit the sidewalk, every head around them turned to look at those coins. They recognized the sound. And the man just looked at his friend and grinned and said, it all depends on what you're listening for. Folks, we are listening for God. We are listening and, and opening our heart through His Word. When you pray, your Bible should be with you. And when you read and you listen, isn't it amazing how sometimes God just picks up on your need and brings you to a passage you've read a hundred times before, and it's like somebody's been writing in your Bible? That wasn't there last week. 
Maybe that's a sign we're starting to listen and hear the things we need. So peace can come to us as we remember what God has done, as we're willing to cry out to Him in our time of need and seek His face. And peace can come when we're ready to listen to what God is saying to us through His Word. And the final way that peace comes in this passage of Scripture Peace can come through trusting. Peace can come through trusting. And this, this has a beautiful statement in the last verses of this text. You see, the people extolled the characteristics of God that led them to have confidence in Him. They, they are singing all those things about God that tells them I can trust God. Charles Aaron wrote about this text. These images are the most evocative and sublime in Scripture. The poet presents the components of God's peace in delightful metaphors. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet each other. Whatever it was, it seemed to have separate the idea of chesed, steadfast, loving kindness and faithfulness. They, if you think they've been estranged, they're coming together. Righteousness and peace. Isn't this beautiful? Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And if this translation is, con- is correct, and it seems a valid translation... Whatever has kept them apart has been removed. If the creation had a drought of faithfulness, it's now springing up from the ground. If anyone has perceived that righteousness has looked the other way, it now points its gaze right at creation. Where does steadfast love and faithfulness meet? Where does righteousness And this idea of faithfulness, peace, come and kiss, and the promised Messiah. He is the one who has brought the possibility of the human heart to experience undying love and faithfulness from God. He is the one where righteousness and peace kiss one of the reasons we're so afraid of that word righteous is we know we are not righteous and we are afraid that God is going to do horrible things to us but in Jesus Christ we've been reconciled the word of God says in Romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ there is no condemnation Because in Christ, these things have met a beautiful statement. Talitha Arnold said, There's no more beautiful image in all scripture, nor a richer pastoral word. The psalmist offers a vision of salvation and God's intention for this world that stretches from earth to heaven and back again. It also a vision of salvation that runs counter to many current understandings. 
And then she points out, but salvation is not just the experience of the individual. It is included in this verse 8 for all who turn to God in their hearts. That's what makes you and me brothers and sisters. That's what makes it possible for us to have contact with people who know the Lord in lands that don't even use our language, in places where we've never been. I've had the, the, the utmost pleasure and honor in getting to be in worship services both in Ukraine and China. And I didn't know much of what was being done. I, could, I couldn't translate but I knew I was among my family and the love that brought us together and allowed us to share with each other during the time we were together was palpable and real. Why? Because in, right, in Jesus Christ, righteousness and peace kiss. It is ours. And when you think about God in those ways, how can you not look at him on confidence? How can you think for one moment his love for you would die and he would not care? These people truly believe that God would grant them the answer they needed. And we must each decide in whom we will place our deepest confidence. Should we trust in our own powers to bring the deliverance we need? Of course not. I can't save myself. Do we put our trust on humanity to grant us the peace we deserve? If you do it, you're going to be disappointed. Karl Barth said, Religion is a possibility of the removal of every ground of confidence except confidence in God alone. Only the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, righteousness, and peace can bring to our hearts the promise of peace. Only He can. So, let us be ready to open ourselves to a confidence in God's salvation even in the face of struggle. I wish I could credit you made this statement. I've seen variations of it from everything from Augustine to, to so many others. But listen, someone once said, trust in yourself and you're doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in money and you may have it taken from you. Trust in reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God and you are for never to be confounded in time of eternity. So let us turn to the God who is worthy of our trust. I've told God many times, I don't know what you're doing. But I believe you're doing something. And there have been times I prayed, could you give me a hint? And sometimes it's been years after the events that I've understood where God was bringing me through. Charles Spurgeon, the great, known as the Prince of Peace, Preachers, said, there's one who cares for you, his eye is fixed on you, his heart beats with pity for your woe, and his omnipotent hand shall bring you the needed help. The darkest cloud shall scatter itself in showers of mercy. 
He, if you are one of his family, will bind up your wounds and heal your broken heart. Do not doubt his grace because of your tribulation, but believe that he loves you as much in seasons of trouble as in times of happiness. If God cares for you, why do you need to care? In other words, be anxious also. Can you trust him for your soul and not your body? He has never refused to bear your burdens. He has never fainted under their weight. Come then, soul. Say goodbye to anxiety and leave your concerns in the hand of the gracious God. Today, remember that God, what God has done in your life this far. He's brought me this far. Today, let your cries go up to God in the time of your struggle and your pain. Today, listen to his words of peace, spoken in a still, small voice, found within his word. Today, this very day, trust in the God who spared nothing for you to know him. Experience the fullness of God's salvation which is the key to peace. The peace he longs to give to your troubled and broken heart. He is the God of Shalom. The God who gives peace to those who will listen. To those who will commit themselves into his hands. Today I invite you to bow your heads and your hearts before the Lord. This is not a formal invitation as such. But if you're at that point in life where struggles and troubles are rolling over you, this is the day to call out to Him. To cry out to him and ask him, give me the peace I need. Help me to find and remember what you've done in my past so that I can have hope for what's going to come in the future. God, help me to listen, to take time to hear you. God, help me to trust you.